Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised as some of the topics can be distressing and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, welcome back to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Ian here, episode 61. So this week I had the great pleasure of interviewing Hannah Bailey for a second time. So as you'll recall, Hannah spoke to us previously about her police career, her double cancer diagnosis and her leaving the job, feeling pretty disillusioned with policing to become a counsellor and a therapist dealing predominantly with people who are experiencing mental distress, mental emotional distress as a result of their jobs. So really enjoyed this. There's lots of content in here which I hope will be really helpful to people who might be experiencing some of this stuff or if they know someone who is, uh, maybe someone on the team, if you're a sergeant or an inspector or a, um, doesn't matter, any rank, PCs, um, detectives, anyone that you know who you think is struggling maybe, uh, yeah, send them a link to this podcast and they can have a listen. There's a lot in here about all sorts of stuff um, and uh, yeah, I'll sort of given some of my own experiences as well. So I hope you enjoyed, I hope you find it useful, lots of useful uh, links and organisations at the end of the episode and uh, yeah, so right, I'll shut up and we'll get into the interview. Hey, there she is. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, good, good. Nice to see you. Yeah, and you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that your uh, is that your consulting room that you're in? Yeah, it's my therapy room. It's all these very relaxed. I feel relaxed just looking at that colour. You know, just, <laughs> like a zen like sense of calm has just come over me. Good. That's nice. I'm glad. I'm glad you can feel that over Zoom as well, Ian. That's amazing. <laughs> My goodness. I see you've got the clock on the wall as well so that you can uh, try and you've got the clock on the wall behind the chair that the client yeah. obviously sits in so you can look at the time without making it really obvious that you look at your watch. Is that what's, is that what, what's going on? Yeah, 100%. I can give it a quick little glance and not look rude like I'm going like this. <laughs> I know, I know. Do you, ever, do you ever find that whenever you really, really need to sort of like be somewhere else other than where you are, but you're with someone who... You don't want to be rude and you have to find a sneaky way of looking at your watch without um, making it obvious that you're looking at your watch. Do you do, you do that? Yeah, 100%. And actually, I don't wear watches because oh, really? that's what you would do. You would 
be glancing at your watch. <laughs> you know, only to keep this, you know, not being rude to the client, only to keep the session on time and, and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. You've yeah, got to yeah, do yeah. that. But yeah, yeah, you really don't want to look like you're doing that, do you? So the Yeah, no, I've uh, I, I the problem is every time I do it, I get captured every single time. Every time I do it. So what I do is I I usually find that my watch is covered up on my sleeve. Uh, so I think, all right, first it's like, so there's gonna be a number of different actions that need to take place here. Um, and try and make it look as casual as possible. So first of all, you have to uncover the watch. So that's generally a kind of a stretching, a stretching motion of some sort, and that achieves the first objective. But if you go straight into looking at the watch at that point, you're you're dead in the water aren't you yeah that's so not you, you gotta leave it for probably another 30 to 45 seconds before you then glance at your watch but anyway sorry i'm so probably so i know ian if you stretch <laughs> in our in our meeting that you're trying to, you're worrying about the time you want to just have a look at your watch <laughs> no you see i don't care what time it is because um let me just talk until I think right that's probably where it's probably done now i did get um some interesting feedback from so this goes out sort of syndicated on policing insights the uh uh what would you call it the police journal the online police journal um covers yeah. all things policing and i did get some feedback that um some people had thought that the episodes were a bit too long and could i sort of chop them up into two or three pieces and i just thought uh no no, I'd rather not do that, actually, because um, I just think it completely upsets the flow of the conversation. Yeah. And, um, you know, if I wanted to do 30 minute episodes, then I'd do 30 minute episodes. But I just think in this day of in this day and age of people having almost no focus and bandwidth and just sort of that, you know, unbelievably short spans of attention, I actually find listening to podcasts that really get into the detail of things actually really yeah. refreshing so no I really agree with you because I've listened um to some of yours I've listened to um Andy Labram and stuff and they do some great podcasts and I think I actually feel like I come away knowing quite a bit about the person yeah. and I think that's really and when you're listening to them or their advice or their insight or whatever it's really nice to know that and I think we live in a very you know, give a quick five minutes something to change your life, and a, and a five minutes anything doesn't change <laughs> your life at all. No, life doesn't, <laughs> so, life doesn't work doesn't. like that, does it? No. So, um, no, I like I I in the world of having to do everything in a minute, I really like the length actually, and as you said, yeah. getting into it and listening. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, you think Joe Rogan? I'm not preparing comparing myself to Joe Rogan, God Almighty, but I mean, his <laughs> podcast one for like three, four hours for goodness' sake. Yeah. Yeah, you know? hours and hours, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I have listened to quite a few of his over the years, and I tend to listen to them either on an incredibly long drive somewhere or, uh, you know, break them up into two or three sections or whatever mm. and come back to them again. But, yeah, I mean, it's pretty, impre pretty impressive that someone can stay on, stay focused to that sort of subject for three or four, particularly some of the subjects they cover are mm, very, yeah. very complex subjects, you know, but yeah. anyway, enough of, enough of that. Listen, um, thanks a million for coming back. You are officially the first guest to come back twice to the podcast. Wow, Ian, I'm honoured. Thank you. Thank you. Check, check, <laughs> How check, nice. Check, check me up. you. I know, you know, don't, please don't interpret that as because I've run out of people to talk to. Because... <laughs> Because that's definitely well, not... now I'm thinking that, Ian. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> you weren't thinking oh, that before, but now I've, yeah, I've, sowed, I've sowed that seed in your mind, yeah, haven't I, probably? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, no, it's brilliant. And uh, we so we've 
you know, we've we've had sort of various offline conversations, haven't we, about uh, and the email exchanges about what um, the purpose of this is. So just so just to explain um, what this is all about. So obviously we had you on first of all, and you told us your fascinating story of your police career, your increasing sense of disillusionment with the job, your double cancer diagnosis and recovery. Well done, you. Um, and uh, and then you know we touched on a few little bits and bobs um, about your clinical work, but I just thought it'd be really interesting to get into that in more detail, to sort of take some anonymized um, kind of common themes. I suppose that's what it, what it is, isn't it? So the common themes of the things that people bring into your clinical practice from policing. Or the emergency service was let's for the purpose of this is a police podcast so let's talk about policing yeah um acknowledging that you do get people from other walks of life but to kind of just look at some of the things that they come to you with and um you know what your general i suppose there needs to be a bit of a takeaway there doesn't there so if people are listening to this who are maybe experiencing some of those issues um you know appreciate this isn't you can't get you can't get therapeutic support through a podcast but what you can get is somewhere to start I suppose isn't there yeah 100 percent. and actually in I'd say that's what people struggle with the most where do I start so actually um mm. you're absolutely right you can't sort of get therapy as such through this and um but I think sometimes it just resonates with people or sometimes you just say one or two things that really resonate and just give somebody a step to take and and that's that gets them on that journey and that's that's important too I think so I think people find that the most difficult bit actually once yeah. they get here and calm yeah. I'm not saying it's it's always an easy journey but it's definitely one of the biggest hurdles over so yeah, yeah. definitely I mean I've reached the point in, in my life you know I'm 56 now I've reached the point where actually I don't give a shit you know um and that's one of the most liberating things about about getting a bit older is that all the things that you got hung up about maybe when you were in your 20s or 30s or even 40s sometimes you know you get to my age whatever now and you just think well I'm speaking for myself I suppose but I don't actually give a shit so if I've got a problem I'll just get it out there you know I'm not ashamed um, to, to talk about these things but a lot of people as you know a lot of people are aren't they yeah 100% find huge huge shame in often their past or what's happened to them or sometimes what they've done that kind of stuff in their life um but also huge shame in then actually speaking about the fact that they're struggling with that so kind mm. of a double whammy really mm. um, and shame is i mean it's a, it's a good word to use i'm not ashamed to say it because shame is crippling i just find it utterly crippling for people and i know i have been crippled with it in the past as well mm, mm, um, mm. and it is a crippling thing it does stop you speaking um mm. And feeling like you're the only person who's either behaved like this or felt like this or yeah, and it, yeah. it sounds a daft phrase doesn't it Ian because we do thankfully mental health is so so much more widely spoken of it is far more recognized hopefully far more supported not always but hopefully far more supported mm. but you think we, we we would be getting over that but we're, we're still not you know and no. it's still, no 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 it's a stigma and it's a it can be it's a massive stigma not just in the workplace but it can also be a stigma within a relationship can't it you know because you could have a of husband and wife or uh, partners or whatever husband and husband wife and wife yeah. Yeah. um who are all uh, you know one person's really struggling and the other person just doesn't get it you know and um and that can be very hard and i can imagine that would make people feel very 
uh, isolated and um, you know alone. So anyway, so what we talked about, and I'll just go back to um, our little kind of you know the headers, the headers, I suppose. So there's a number of different uh, areas that we, and we don't, we can, we don't have to stick to this. Uh, we can go um, off piece um, if if that's the right thing to do. So we talked about a number of things, uh, including struggling after critical incidents um, and uh, potentially maybe people being investigated for something that they've either done or they haven't done, but they're still being investigated. Um, lack of confidence and self-esteem uh, in maybe moving roles or getting promoted. Um, uh, others maybe wanting to leave the job to do something else, but feeling that they just don't know what to do and that they maybe have nothing to offer the outside world. And then something there about sort of PTSD or trauma, dealing with trauma. So are you okay if we kind of dive into those areas generally? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've sort of made some notes and just because you said as we talked a little bit about some of the headings, didn't we? And, and I've made some notes around and they pretty much hit most of those. Uh, Brilliant. Okay, like I said, we don't have to stick bit. slavishly to those. Um, yeah. If there's other, if we go off at a bit of a tangent, that's absolutely <laughs> fine. So, so yeah. So, um, so looking at that issue um, about critical incidents, um, and <laughs> there's probably uh, there probably isn't a single police officer or ex-police officer listening to this um, who hasn't, at some point, experienced dealing with something that's true, been truly uh chaotic and difficult to deal with and process so um um so yeah so over to you then really so what what are your what are your sort of thoughts around that in terms of what the people who come to you um where where are they where are they sort of mentally and emotionally while dealing with all that kind of stuff uh, so what i would say really when people tend to get to the stage of coming to me is it's probably way, way after a, a critical incident or a particularly difficult or traumatic job has happened. So it's very, very unlikely to be quite soon afterwards. Um, and I think, again, that's quite, I, I think it's cultural as in, you know, we can cope and it's this and I deal with it all the time and I'm a police officer and this is fine, this is what we deal with. Um, so we, uh, we just sort of carry on. Um, but also, I think it's also shock, actually. So that's a normal fight or flight shock type response. Mm -hmm. So often you're in shock and part of shock is that you numb out those feelings for a bit. It's a way of helping the body cope. Um, I know we'll get onto PTSD later, but one of the th things about PTSD that you, you can't actually be diagnosed with PTSD until three months after an event because some of the stuff first going on is really natural and normal to any traumatic event. Mm. And the whole issue around PTSD is that that hasn't been processed with, the shock has probably worn off and your body isn't coping. Um, so mm. I would say with critical incidents, it's, um, it's uh, very likely that people come to me 12 months, 24 months, whatever down the line after that. Um, mm. It's not usually straightforward at all. Right into um, another sort of heading I had actually and it ties into what we've been talking about before in is what often happens is because the cultural changes in the job are so different now of how you're mm. dealt with after yeah. something um, that has happened um, is 
that that is then having almost like a, another effect and then another effect and then another effect on those offices. So, so what do you what do you mean by that in terms of? I mean, I think I know what you mean by that, but just explain what you mean by that. Well, I think if um, I think humans are incredibly resilient to trauma, actually, I think we have a great process in place and a great mechanism in place to help us cope with trauma. Mm. Um, the problem is, is that if the aftermath of that coping mechanism isn't supported, then it will go pear shaped. So as in, so people being listened to and talking about it or finding another way to process it and talking isn't the only way. Mm. Um, it's one of the best ways I obviously advocate for, but it isn't the mm. only way, but, but mindfully processing that incident in some way is mm. incredibly important, but also um, being validated. So what I would say in terms of we, we would all know what we mean by a critical incident, but to be honest, some of the jobs that stuck in my head would never have been flagged as a critical incident, but for me, mm. hit me mm. really hard. Yeah. And that will determine very, very much your circumstances, like kids or divorce or finances or wherever you are yeah. in life. It can hit you and it might not hit another colleague or your team. Yeah. So you don't get those feelings validated at all. You think yeah. like I'm sort of, I'm the only one who, who seems to have been really affected by that. So you definitely push that down more as well. Yeah, yeah there's definitely, um, you're, you're absolutely right. Because, I mean, it's funny how certain incidents that you go to just sort of catch you um, and take, you know, kind of take your breath away a little bit. Not necessarily because they're the most dramatic, but there'll be something that will be there that triggers something in you. I'm not sure. I mean, I remember, um, don't worry, I'm not going to give you loads of war stories, but I remember I remember going to a domestic incident in Coventry um, many years ago as a sergeant. Um, there was three or four of us turned up. I think I was the first on scene. It was really, really um, just chaotic. Uh, it was two, sort of maybe two o'clock in the morning. Um, all you could hear was this unbelievable screaming and crashing around inside the house. Um, the front door was open. There was a child of about three years old on the lawn, face down with obvious injuries, crying, um, screaming. And then inside the house, there was children cringing up against the walls, uh, crying. Mum was lying on the floor having had a really bad beating and um and then this crazy guy appeared out of the kitchen um with a knife and um it was all really it was all mental um and uh, he then saw us and then legged it out the back doors so he was kind of gone uh, we got him later on we had to deal with the screaming children and mum, who was in a right mess, you know what I mean? And that incident really affected me, actually. Not, right. not necessarily because it was a, wasn't like a bomb scene or a train crash. Right. Yeah. Or yeah. a, or a um, it was, I remember picking the child up in my arms. And I think my, I think my, so how, when was this? Probably about 2004 or five, maybe. So how old was my, so my son would have been about the same age as that little boy. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that was probably the reason why yeah. that that incident affected me as much. Anyway, enough for that. I, I, I just yeah. use that. I but, just, I just yeah. thought it was interesting the way you said there that it doesn't have to yeah. be 
something that that would be classed as a critical incident does it yeah and i think that's you know almost who decides what a critical incident really a critical incident is is really more to do with the demands the demands on the service i would say yeah. and the impact in the wider community and and that's how a critical incident generally isn't it is decided rather than actually how much it's individually impacted that officer so mm. Definitely, um, there's often times like situations like that that people come to me with and they've just felt stupid or silly or whatever the word is or an idiot or I can't cope or ashamed um, that that job particularly affected them, even though everybody else seems to be fine. And it wasn't a critical incident or anything that this is the problem in they're going to jobs day in, day out that no one is recognising as particularly traumatic because they go to them day in, day out. Yeah. As such, then it's just... But it must have a cumulative oh, effect on people as well, mustn't it? Effect. Yeah. And, you know, that is um, complex PTSD, is that it is known as that drip-drip effect. It doesn't have to be one thing that hit you. It can just mm. be again and again and again and again. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, but it usually is, they come because somewhere the support mechanism got lost afterwards whether that's home whether it's job whether it's them like something else happened so there was an incident it sort of rocked them a bit wasn't great but then something else happened or um something went wrong out of that incident as well like somebody dying or a colleague getting injured and stuff like that so mm. It, it can depend and it's very di very um, different for everybody, but it usually happens that people end up coming for therapy if the support mechanism somewhere afterwards completely mm. failed. Um, yeah. and so, so it's an interesting one that, um, just welcome your thoughts on this. The organization over the years has become on paper more supportive um, in terms of having better policies around supporting staff who are experiencing difficulties versus the old way of doing things, which I think you and I talked on about in the last podcast, which was basically everybody just goes out and gets pissed. And, and there's usually a kind of a lot of banter, a lot of um, piss taking. Um, and th that's how people kind of dealt with it. In a weird sort of way, I would have to argue from my own experience that the old way of doing things was actually more weird weirdly more effective than than you being referred into this kind of bureaucratic thing that feels very impersonal generally being done by someone who doesn't really understand somebody from hr someone from occupational health or something like that who doesn't really who's never actually done the job doesn't really understand it do they yeah and here's my thing on that I would say and I completely agree with you and I should I would say what would be the perfect world is to offer both yeah some people do 100% need that professional help that therapy counseling whatever it is I completely agree with you about though people not understanding and and not this isn't blowing my own trumpet but what I hear mm. so often from police officers is that it's so nice to have professional help but somebody who completely understands what I'm talking about and the culture or the jobs and I'm not um I've realized that people worry very much at shocking others and upsetting others who they're telling you know their mm. thoughts and their feelings and they know that I'm not shocked and upset by that I don't mean I don't mm. care it's not about not being kind mm. yeah. not shocked and upset and I understand the cultures the ranks the acronyms you know they can just talk freely with yeah. me yeah, and yeah. so that is a massive sort of bonus but you're right also about the the pub and I think that the thing is there's both because 
what people worry about still is the formality of professional help. It feels mm. quite big, quite scary, like I'm really in trouble. Not necessarily in trouble, but you know what I mean? I'm in trouble as in struggling with my, my mental yeah, health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or possibly a little bit in trouble with work because mm. people are still getting ostracised for mental health, and that is what I'm hearing mm. all the time. And really the job would either rather you out, really, if I'm honest, rather than cope with proper mental health situations. I don't mean a couple of weeks off with some anxiety or stress or going through divorce. I mean, serious long-term mental health, the job would rather you be out. Mm. Um, so I think people are, are frightened still of professional therapy. Yeah. Um, and therefore that is where the sort of pub culture or canteen culture or having a mate who had you back and had a chat over a drink mm. and then had a laugh and banter about it, that, that would be, a benefit too and I think we're missing both routes mm. actually yeah so let's talk let's talk a little bit about um the importance of supervision in those types of scenarios because um as you know having a really good sergeant or a really good in an ideal world an ideal world you've got a team that is very cohesive and everyone is looking out for each other and uh, supporting each other and everybody comes to work to, to kind of do a good job and also to hopefully have a bit of fun at the same time. Um, and then you've got maybe one or two uh, really good sergeants. This is ideal world. I run it one or two really good sergeants and each sergeant might have a slightly different skill set that is uh, useful because they're not all the same, are they? You know, you'll have one sergeant who's maybe brilliant operationally and you might have another sergeant who's brilliant from an administrative point of view or something like that, you know, and, but they work well together and mm. they support the team. Um, and uh, then you've got maybe the next tier above an inspector who is unambiguously supportive of his or her staff, uh, hands-on operationally when they need to be, um, but um, good at sort of keeping everything moving along uh, and whatnot. So that's the ideal, isn't it? But what, what are you kind of hearing in terms of, you know, some of those supervision issues that might contribute to someone's poor mental health? Yeah. Um, so really, yeah, this is one of the headings I've got is the complete uh, and utter change in culture, I'd be honest, Ian. But certainly if you've been in, I'd say more than about 20 years now, 15, 20 years, the complete and utter change in culture. And by that, really, um, I've put the lack of having your back, um, the blame culture, uh, complete change in leadership styles. Um, and I think... This isn't in about, and this is a problem when we try and swing the pendulum a little bit to correct issues in the police. This is not about somebody having you back, your back when you've been corrupt. You know, yeah, this is yeah. not what I'm talking about because that yeah. had to be, you know, that had to be got rid of. It's black and white, correctly. isn't it? Yeah. And that, that shouldn't exist. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just having your back in terms of let's look at this fairly. Let's support you as much as whatever else we need to look at in this. Um, and that isn't that isn't happening. And and I want to say in terms of if we look at fight or flight, because that's all to do with mental health and trauma and, and PTSD and so on. If we look at fight or flight, what your body does when it's stressed or in trouble or frightened or threatened. First of all, it looks to what you can do to survive and sort yourself out or protect yourself. But if you can't do that, what it looks for is people or a tribe or a family or whatever you want to call it that will have your back, mm. that will that will be there for you either physically mm. or 
um, emotionally or practically mm -hmm. or whatever words you want. That's what fight or flight will look for. Mm -hmm. And it's not, I know it's a cliche to say about the police family, but that is ultimately what you join because of the type of job it is. You do start to see them as, a, as an extension of your family. Certainly, as you said, if you've got those, you know, those great colleagues or good first line supervisors, that's how you start to see them. That's the, yeah. the level of sort of trust yeah. you have to put in them because it is a because it's so often a fight or flight situation. Mm -hmm. So when that is taken away from you, um, often in a complete you're completely flawed by it. And it was people that you thought would have your back yeah. and support you. And I mean, speak up for you and say, no, no, wait a minute. No, you've got that wrong. She didn't do anything wrong at all, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, <clears throat> I know I listened to your podcast with Maggie Oliver, you know, people that you thought would really back you up with what she was trying to say there mm. and what she was trying to, to get action on there. And, you know, just being so ostracized by people that she trusted and mm, mm. that should have supported her yeah. and had her back. So I, so those lack, that lack of support, are you seeing uh, or hearing about that sort of right through the kind of command, for want of a better word, command chain from sort of sergeant right up to the sort of more senior ranks? Yeah, being honest. And, and I don't mean everybody. So people might say my sergeant's great, but my superintendent wants to do my legs or the other way around my superintendent's really understanding my sergeant hasn't got a clue so it, I'm you know I'm not seeing a mm. pattern of it sits at a sergeant rank or it sits at an inspector rank I'm not actually I'm seeing um I'm seeing a real mix of it um mm. and I I think the leadership um and you you know you speak about this Ian has has changed massively isn't it it isn't mm. about mm. It's not even really the same job at a certain rank, is it? It's not yeah. really about policing. Mm. Um, <clears throat> it's about home office policies and paperwork and meetings and and yeah, um, mental and health. Really, um, you know, people having a mental health crisis and and all of that kind of stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I'm not. And, and remember, Ian, this isn't me trying to say that there's there's no good leaders or, or line managers in the police mm. I obviously see that worse end of it if that makes yeah. you know that's what I'm seeing yeah. coming in. so I'm not sitting here saying that's that's mm. endemic or anything but yeah. but it is causing a lot of problems yeah, yeah. so it is a question um uh, and you can I don't know uh, you can tell me to bugger off and say no no that's uh, <laughs> that's an inappropriate question but do, because you're an ex-police officer do you get people in your clinical practice who you look at and go, you know what you need to do? You need to just get a grip of yourself. Or, or do you try and uh, forget almost that you used to be a police officer? I mean, because the fact is, let's let's be honest here, we all we've all worked with people in the police who are um, just probably shouldn't be in the job, you know? Yeah. Um, they're just temperamentally or emotionally or physically or whatever, a combination of all of those just probably just not cut out for it um and 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 i used to say that to people you know not not in a horrible way i used to say you know what you know this would be someone who was consistently um just a, a problem child i suppose someone who was there was always a reason why they couldn't do x y or z you know they would always want time off at times when it just wasn't appropriate uh they would they would their work wasn't a very good standard and and you know and I used to say to people I I'm just not sure this is the job for you, um, 
I mean, do you, do you, how do you manage your feelings about that sometimes? <laughs> I completely agree with you and definitely had people like that on my shift and stuff like that. But honestly, I, I'm going to say, honestly, I'm not seeing that. It might be just the, the type of people that I'm getting coming to see me. Mm. I also appreciate Ian. Obviously, I only get their version. Yes. So perhaps if I went to their supervisor, they might go, here's a whole ream of emails of, of us offering support, or, you know. So I do, you know, I'm, I, of course, see it from that angle. And my absolute priority in my job is to help them as much as possible. And, and to be honest, Ian, my sessions, and I, and I do some group sessions as well for Blue Light Leavers, and, and they'll, they would sort of back, back me up on this. It is very much about empowerment. So how mm. can you change this? What could you do? What, do you know what I mean? Or what are you not doing yeah. to make the situation a bit better? So I'm, I'm very happy to challenge that a little bit. You know, really, yeah. are you just very unhappy in the job? Mm. And are you struggling here? And is this something that you could change or do something about? So it isn't just me sort of going, oh, poor you. This is just awful. Yeah. I will happily challenge that. Um, but but being honest, uh, I would say most people I'm seeing are really happy to be challenged and mm. and chat like that and talk like that. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, possibly because sometimes it can be yeah. you can have some. I I can remember sometimes having conversations with people. I'm not saying you know, you know. I think I need to caveat all of this with saying I, I was never perfect in the job. I was I never perfect at ev at every rank. You know, I had my own shortcomings as a as a police officer and as a supervisor at every rank so I'm not sitting here pretending that I was the best you know cop at every rank but the occasionally um you would have those conversations with someone and and I used to say um what, what used to really upset not upset me used to frustrate me sometimes when I was trying to deal with someone who was constantly you know just just not just, just not doing it for the organization, not doing it for me, not doing it for the colleagues. Um, they would very quickly um, sort of move into the sort of victim mode. You know, it's like everyone's against me. Uh, and there was very little kind of self-reflection about why it is that, why, why are we having this conversation? What are the, what are the things that have brought us to the point where we're locking horns on a, yeah. permanent basis what you know what and there was never any the thing that used to frustrate me was there was never any sort of self-reflection there you know do you so going back to your point about that challenge um presumably you're quite happy to say to people listen there's you know you need to think about why this might not be working out for you yeah yeah 100 percent. And, and as i said fair play you know to to the people that i'm working with as a whole are, are really happy to do that and they are quite open to having those sort of conversations about because that you know I think as we said coming for therapy is quite a big step still particularly for police officers but everybody actually that mostly they're really willing to mm. <coughs> excuse me losing my voice this morning they're really willing actually for the, for the most part to have a look what they could do or what they could change yeah. um, and how they could make it better a hundred percent you know and I don't I'm and actually I'm not massively into to blame anyway, as in yeah. let's blame them, let's blame them, let's blame yeah. them, because we know there's problems, don't we? And we know there's issues with, with the culture and policing at the moment, and certainly funding and mm. resources and staffing levels are just hideous for people. So <clears throat> it's very much about what can 
they do to help themselves and change how this is feeling and right. working for them. Yeah. So um, and, and I'll say as well, it does depend who you go to because a counsellor is somebody, and again, not knocking counselling, it's really important, but would be there more to listen and let people just offload it completely from their mm. view, if you like, and what's mm. happened to them. Mm. But because I'm a psychotherapist and, and a coach, my ethos, if you like, is not that you can't come and say anything you want and offload anything you want, but then it's how do we move this forward? Mm. How can this feel different for you? How can this get better for you? Mm-hmm. Um, and what can you do about it and what can you change? So it maybe that's what therefore what I get more of if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I just and just to clarify, I'm not because I, I was I was thinking, I was reflecting back on what I just said there. And I thought, God, it sounds like you sounded like a right dick there. As if as if I was <laughs> suggesting what I wasn't what I wasn't doing, I wasn't suggesting that everyone walking through your door uh, no, is some no. sort of malingering no, I know you know kind of half wit, you know. I mean but they are out there aren't they and I suppose that's the point a hundred percent they're out there they're out there I suppose I I guess I would say as well um because I have consultations with people before we start and I do talk about how how um hopefully I can help them but for this to be different and to look different and feel different and stuff Mm. like that and what we can do together to do that so it, so I suppose again, maybe that filters through almost that yeah. I, I get more of those clients, which is lovely for me to work yeah. with. But you're right, Ian. It, it is out there a hundred percent. I think everybody's come across those mm. sort of officers in the police, um, mm. and, I, and I think it will always it will always be, won't it? Don't think you yeah. can. Yeah, of course. It's in life, isn't it? Yeah. So let's talk. Yeah. Let's talk about um, getting tied up in a horrible complaint or an investigation because that is as you know one of the most stressful things for police officers to to have to deal with um and it's particularly stressful if they haven't actually done anything wrong yes um but they just are maybe peripheral to a wider investigation or or the investigator it might be an investigation to something that's completely malicious or, or for that matter it might be an investigation into something that did happen that was wrong, but but which they just made a terrible mistake. Human error, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. Do people? Yeah, because that that is quite quite common. Sadly, um, I'm not saying it's happening every week, but you know, it's definitely again um, an issue that people really struggle with. And I and I think again. Um, it is that feeling slightly like the job's trying to do you do your legs and I'm not saying it is but definitely it sets up that quite defensive panicky feeling of the job's trying to do my legs sort of thing and we again we have shifted a little bit to that and I saw it myself Ian that when something and I can remember particularly a domestic murder inquiry and uh, these two uh, officers had gone to this uh, female victim about a month before um, over an incident and it wasn't recorded as a domestic and certainly from the circumstances I knew I wouldn't have recorded it as a domestic either Mm. Um, but it wasn't recorded as as a domestic and a month later he killed her the partner killed her and they were under investigation for mm. about, I think it's about 12, 18 months. Mm. And in the end, nothing happened to them. And that's the thing. So two things. One, I don't actually think they'd done anything wrong. But even if they did, mm. it was human error. It wasn't some, yeah. you know, it wasn't corrupt officers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was just this hideous, hideous time for them. Not mm. only, Ian, worrying about ultimately losing your job. You know, mm. if it's an investigation where you can lose your job, 
mm. or even face criminal charges. And they knew they wouldn't have faced criminal charges. Um, but obviously some jobs you could. Um, but where you might lose your job. Um, but also the guilt on those officers of feeling that they might have been in any way to contribute mm. to that woman's death yeah, yeah. is just... It's just but it's funny, isn't it? You know um, that different people react differently to these sorts of things. Um, I was very fortunate in the sense that I managed to remain operationally very active for, you know, most of my service um, without dropping in the shit. Um, and, you know, some of that was through good luck. Some of it was, I like to think, through professionalism. Um, but it's quite unusual really to get to be operationally active for most of your career and not to drop in the shit at some point yeah um yeah. but the thing that always amazed me was that if you did get involved in something that was a bit um had the potential of going really pear-shaped um there were certain people who just didn't give a shit did they they literally they could go home have a good night's sleep uh, they literally did not did not bat an eyelid and then there's other people on the shift who would be an absolute wreck, you know, or would be not sleeping. Um, they would be, you know, absolutely. I mean, I remember one particular incident. I won't describe it because it's it's quite a, it was a, de a death. It was when I was down in South London. Um, uh, it was an alter, violent altercation where the guy ended up dying. And uh, there was two officers who were involved in that particular incident. One of them just did not seem to give, you know, he just he just carried on uh, whilst under investigation without appearing to bat an eyelid. The other guy, oh my God, he 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 lost about three stone in weight. Yeah. He, he he looked at it terrible. Um, you know, he obviously wasn't sleeping. So, I mean, do you do you, what? What's that all about? How does how does how does one person react in such a terrified way, and another person just doesn't seem to give a monkey's? Um, it's definitely, again, to do with the fight or flight brain and how it responds to a particular incident. And that is always, if you go, if I go a bit um, technical here, Ian, um, the, fight or fight, the fight or flight part of the brain, the subconscious part of the brain, remembers every single memory you've ever had, like literally since birth, it can recall every single one subconsciously. And it's constantly, when it's going, when it's checking for fight or flight all the time, and it checks for fight or flight all the time, like your brain's doing it now, my brain's doing it now, all the time, it will constantly check against those almost like background checks, if you like, background mm. records, intelligence mm. records, as mm. to whether anything similar to that has happened before and what happened to them. So I'm not saying it means that they were they were under investigation for something else. I'm not saying that they were, but it can be anything that suddenly switches the brain into, oh my God, what the hell is this going to do to me? It could be, um, it could be guilt over, for example, something else in their background to do with their family, to do with growing up, and it's triggered that for them. Um, mm. of not doing enough, not getting it right, that kind of stuff. It could be something else in the police. It could also be because the fight or flight brain gets overloaded, it gets overwhelmed. And then when it does that, it, it uh, responds in a more heightened way. So mm. it could be that his fight or flight brain has got 
six, seven, eight other things going on, right. work at home and so on. And therefore it slightly overreacts to an incident and that's it, it's gone. And it sort of mm. travels off on that trajectory then. Yeah. Um, whereas the other person's fight or flight brain, for whatever reason, doesn't lodge that as some huge threat mm. um, and can and sort of cope, for, you know, sort of relatively normally, you know, might not like it, might not be glad they're investigated, but will be fine and can look at it a bit more logically and calmly yeah. and you know, let's just wait till the outcome and so on and all those words that we would all use yeah, so, yeah. so what would your what would your advice be to someone who is currently under investigation for something that could potentially if it went badly wrong for them uh result in them potentially losing their job or even worse ending up looking at criminal charges i mean is there I know everyone's different, and but you know other other sort of standard things that we would be saying to them. Um, I would say because I think most people in that situation would probably have a fed rep, mm. um, and but I, but we also know they vary as well in terms of their experience or their skill or their understanding and their commitment to you. Some some people say to me, "I said I'll never hear for them," and some people say their fed rep's brilliant. And again, that's just you know sort of a little bit luck of the draw. So. So yes, so a Fed rep, wonderful if you've got a good Fed rep, Fed rep that's supportive of you. But otherwise, I would look at either therapy, that's honest, and go and ask for some therapy to just go and talk to somebody about it, even if it's once a month, going through that. So go you're, not you're not necessarily looking for the therapist to solve the problem because they can't, but, no, but at least exactly. talking about it is yeah. helpful, is it? Yeah, talking about it is helpful. And also because what I was just saying about the fight or flight brain, when the brain's in fight or flight, it struggles very much to look at logic, consequence, balance, you know, evidence, that kind of stuff. It will just be literally focused in the sort of, oh my God, how the hell do I get through this? moment and that kind of logic and reasoning that we've just said you know come on let's let's just wait till an outcome let's talk this through let's look at some balance that kind of goes out the window a little bit in fight or flight or completely in fight or flight so a therapist or certainly um somebody who's not as emotionally attached to it and that situation would be good to talk things through mm. um or and, and more forces are looking at this um or go outside the force and i've got a list i'll go through if that's okay at the end ian yeah, yeah a lot of outside help outside the force but with police officers that would offer you some peer support so by peer support i'd be asking for somebody in the group who'd gone through what you'd gone through right so at least they just understand they can as you just said in go to go to the pub and have a drink together but just mm. to chat it through yeah. and just mm. someone helpful to give you either a bit of like practical advice it's not sorting mm. it all it's not legal advice but a bit yeah. of practical advice yeah. or someone to offload to yeah i mean we've had um previous guests on um you know where we had with uh, adrian who was involved in the stockwell incident the two-parter which was um uh, unbelievably stressful for him and his colleagues. I mean, obviously, you know, the tragedy of a man losing his life, you know, overshadows all of that, but um, the unbelievable stress that they were going through and the firearms officers uh, were going through. And then we had Tony Long way back in the sort of earlier part of the podcast, can't remember what episode it was, but he got charged with murder of Azel Rodney. And um, yeah, and then you look at sort of, more recent incidents you know we've had the incident with Chris Cabo in London who was shot by the firearms officer following a pursuit and all of the publicity around that and the very sort of quite hysterical response from the usual sort of quite left-wing 
groups calling it murder and all of this. I mean, you really, when you look at those types of extreme situations, um, I, I think it's almost surprising that anyone can cope in yeah. under that level of pressure, isn't it? Yeah, that, I, mean, I, I don't even know what you would. What would, where would you even start with someone like that? You know. Well, I would because they work with a, a psychotherapy as well. Um, that would actually help. It works with the fight or flight part of the brain. So to be honest, if somebody came to me with that, I would work with them through that. Um, and um, although actually, I need to put a caveat in there because the therapy I work with, you're not allowed to use until a criminal investigation is over so actually that's slightly different isn't it but I can see somebody in terms of therapy and talking um, if there's an ongoing investigation um, but absolutely it is important to come and get you'd have to try and get everything else in your life as supportive as possible to cope with that and that's what I would say as well helps with outside support um, not just therapy if as an exactly a mentor that's not in your force perhaps that's gone through it as well um family or friends if they are the right people that can be supportive and put things in place because if I take it to like physical illness Ian if you know if you're recovering from an operation we'd say get someone to help you with practical stuff get your you know get some good nutrition in get extra sleep get do you know what I mean and we'd, we'd mm. say look at all the other areas of your life to try and support you through that period of ill health or recovery mm. as best as possible and it's exactly the same with extreme mental health sort of stressful periods of time the better you can make the support um, in the rest of your life is is the way to help you cope through that because as you said Ian it's it's a huge toll um yeah, yeah. and then you think about um a lot of the officers who go through those very those fatal shootings or whatever I mean in the case of the officer who shot Chris Cabba you know I believe he's still suspended but very often a lot of them um you know are still going back out uh doing operational work and you know Tony described a situation of when he um, he was given the sort of all all clear, so to speak. Um, but then he was then then having to go back out again <laughs> and do that job. Yeah. And you just think, oh my God, you know, I mean, I mean, I really, really take my hat off to them. I really do. Incredible. Um, but uh, the resilience, mental resilience that you must need to to then pick up a gun and go back out on the street and yeah. go back into exactly the same situation that brought you all that stress upon you again, you know. Yeah, that's incredible. And again, that sort of um, open ended approach we should be looking at, you know, how you said, should we do therapy or should we do having a drink down the pub with your mate? It's because there isn't a one size fits all. And some people would want to go back to operational duties to sort of keep that sense of normality in their life um, and keep their purpose and keep some focus in their life. And others would really struggle to go back to that and do need some time at home to decompress and just process stuff or get some extra sleep or rest or whatever it is that they might need. And that, again, I feel it's, um, I can't say 100% for all forces, but it doesn't seem, it's either like, this is what happens when an incident happens. And I know if there's a firearms incident where the firearms discharge that, they don't go out on operational duties until that's investigated. Mm. I know they're not normally suspended, so that is a different topic, isn't it, Ian? But mm. um, 
they but they are taken off operational duties until mm. that's investigated but they're allowed to go in and I think that mm. gives them some normality still being with their team a bit still being supported a bit mm. not so ostracized but perhaps not having the the stress and the demands of of going out on operational duty yeah. one of the I'm sort of keen that we sort of um try and give people a few little sort of uh, helpful pointers towards managing their own mental health I suppose and and speaking for myself, one of the things I used to struggle with whenever I was dealing with poor mental health in the past, and thankfully that, that hasn't been for a while, which is, you know, a blessing, but uh, I'm under an illusion that could come back again. But, you know, one of the things I really struggled with, and I think a lot of people do, because I speak, I talk about this with others who have struggled, is this kind of circular, I, don't, I would describe it as this kind of constant, intrusive, circular type of thinking that just goes round and round and round in your head and you just cannot switch your mind off from whatever it is that's troubling you and sometimes what's troubling you is a is a sort of a, a real thing and other times it's it's not even a real thing it's just a, a silly thing uh, and you know it's irrational how how do you um help people switch their brains off I think that's what I'm saying because sometimes particularly in the middle of the night you wake up at two three o'clock in the morning and you can almost feel that adrenaline kicking back in again uh, and that's it you know you're not going to be sleeping for the rest of the night you just know it because yeah. you're just feeling so keyed up you know so what would your advice be for people experiencing that type of stuff? so that's really really common really normal I can do it too 100% your brain will go off on a little tangent and then it's gone um so what I say because I have a lot of people say to me I can't help it I can't help my thoughts I can't help going there and I, I, I I'm 50 50 on that what I would say is I absolutely agree with you that you can't help a thought popping into your head it's just there isn't it as you said you wake up it's there, it started, that's a little treadmill's happening. So I absolutely get you can't help that. But once you become aware, consciously aware that that thought is in your head, you do then have choices what you do with it, 100%. It is, it takes habit, if I'm honest, Ian, it does take some work to do it because we've usually gotten, again, by the time people come for therapy, we've usually got quite habitual at doing it and it's really overwhelming people and then affecting sleep, and eating and so on so you do have to practice and you do have to um, really take control back over your thoughts um, but there is various ways of doing that 100% and some are easier than others some are tougher than others so what I help people with is say we look at about five different options and I can talk some through and some of them are easy like if you know you're not going to get back to sleep because a lot of people lie there and then try to, and then I don't want to turn on the light and I don't like that. And I mustn't turn on the telly, but actually you're still there for an hour with the same thoughts going over your head. Mm. So if you know, I say, give it a bit of time, like five minutes, not ages, five, 10 minutes. And if you're not back asleep in five, 10 minutes, actually you need to give that up and go and read a book, get a cup of tea, even put the telly on, you know, and I know people say don't do that, but it's actually better than sitting there in the dark mm. for an hour with some really horrible stuff going around in your head. Mm. So there's some really easy ones. And I'm not saying, therefore, they sort the thoughts out in, they don't. But in the middle of the night um, and it's all dark, no one's there and you can't call anybody and, you know, you're not going off to work. It's, it's really important you put some really easy distractions in that mm. you just choose to say enough. I'm not doing it. Yeah. So those are sort of some easy ones. Um, there's others. There's apps you can put 
put on. Like I love the Calm app. And what they do is there's either some meditation, there's lovely things called sleep stories. So it's literally like someone's reading your bedtime story to go back to sleep. So I really like it. Um, there's noises, whatever. There's something for everybody on the Calm app. It's an incredible app. Um, so I, did one, I did one of those one night. I downloaded one and yeah. uh, put it on. And I thought this is great. And then it, and it was only Stephen Fry, wasn't it? I fucking hate Stephen Fry. It's like... <laughs> It's like, it's like, it ended up making me feel worse. You know? It really was, yeah. And actually, I will say that because luckily there is about 50 different um, narrators on the Calm app, but some of them I'm just so irritated by their voices. It's like, I just it's think like no disrespect to Stephen Fry. It's just, no. it's just. It's just not my cup of tea. I liked him in Blackadder, but since then he just annoys the annoys. Um, yeah, and you will. You'll find people's voices, accents, all that kind of stuff that just winds people up. So obviously, don't listen to those ones. But because it because it is a really varied app, so there's male voices, female voices, different accents, different stories, different tones, paces, that sort of stuff. So um, I, I challenge you now, Ian, to find somebody on the Calm app that doesn't piss you off in the middle of the night and won't mind you. Jacob Reese Mogg. There we go. He can read me a bedtime story. I'll end up. I'll end up throwing a half brick through the window. You know. Yeah, you would. Yeah. I don't listen to him in the middle. I don't think he's on the calm up here. No, he's not sure it'd be terribly calming for many. So, um, so there's so there's more sort of constructive um, options mm. to put your mind off. Um, but the other thing I'd say, because people worry about stuff in the day as well as the night. And, and the phrase I use for kids, so you don't have to use the same phrase for adults, but is worry time. So with kids, I say, have worry time. Mm. Um, but really what that's saying to your brain is, all right, I know you're stressed about this. I know you want this listened to. I know you want it sorted out. But, but still, doing it 24-7 is utterly exhausting. So yeah. you give yourself a time. I mean, if you even have to put the time on your phone or in your diary, do it. But if not, just give yourself half an hour where you can do that, you can run and rave, you can be petty, you can be silly, you can f and blind, whatever you mm. like, but then you have to stop because otherwise it does carry on all day. Mm. So, I find uh, I find exercise very helpful. Yeah. Um, I definitely I know when I I know when I need to go out for you know some intense, quite intense exercise, and I know 100 percent that it I will definitely feel better. But obviously, sometimes if you're in that sort of not feeling great kind of phase it's hard to motivate yourself sometimes isn't it yeah 100 percent. and 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 i do help people with almost making a list of coping mechanisms or distractions that are more positive because obviously some people turn to alcohol drugs um shopping spending money um you know whatever so and i'm not trying to sort of judge those by saying bad or good i'm just saying they tend to have a more negative or destructive in the end outcome of mm. a way of coping with extreme stress so therefore make a little bit almost of a portfolio or a list or whatever you want of different things so that you've got exercise or mm. I will say as well any activity and the words would be Ian to absorb you fully so when mm. you're totally absorbed in it art music um yeah drawing singing exercise me it's dancing absolutely love going to um to dance class you know mm. so any exercise that absorbs you fully will mm. help take you out of those thoughts yeah. um but like you said you can't always um have the, the energy to do that and therefore it's you should have a list really so that you can 
literally yeah. read it have something practical and simple in front of your face yeah. and pick one of them however yeah. much of a state you're in that you feel you can cope with and the whole the whole male female thing i mean i don't want to get into the whole um you know there's all sorts of different types of men there's all sorts of different types of women isn't there and everybody will cope differently but do you notice many differences between um male clients and female clients in terms of the way they respond or deal with these types of stressful periods in their life yeah as, as you said in a sort of um generalized way as you said everybody's got their nuances and differences but yes as a generalized way and actually I'm glad you brought that up because I feel our culture is going towards almost that we have to treat all men and women um, or any other gender identity exactly the same. And that's not true. And mental health does not follow that pattern at all. And there are some trends and men do um, as a generalization, uh, bottle stuff up more. Mm. Um, they are, they worry very, very much about financial issues mm. um, more than women do. And I don't mm. mean, again, I'm not trying to say women don't have financial stresses. I'm yeah. not. But in terms of not speaking about them, that's probably what I would say. In right. terms of sort of saying they're struggling financially, men struggle with that more than women. Right. Um, yeah. Um, so, yes, I would definitely say men bottle it up more. I mean, the statistic, Ian, um, is that there are, and I can't, I'm afraid I can't remember the percentage, but there's many, many more attempts at suicide with women, but right. there's many, many more um, successful suicides with men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, I've heard that as well. Yeah. Yeah, and that would sort of sum it up to me, kind of thing. If that's probably the best. Yeah, way no, I've I've, yeah. I've listened to quite a lot about that on another podcast and things, and I, I think I think there's something something there about, um, you know, I don't know. Again, without wanting to get drawn into gender stereotypes, um, men tend to be more um, practical about, uh, you know, the nuts and bolts of actually right. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it properly. You know what I mean? It's like hanging the door. It's like. Uh, or yeah. fixing the car or whatever. It's like they want to, they plan it better and they probably um, literally um, execute it. Um, sorry, didn't mean to use that word, but you know what I mean? They are probably more um, practical in terms of the, the logistics of it. But um, anyway, listen, um, subtle change of direction um, because we've got, we've got other things on the list I'd really like to, yeah. to, to cover. So this, uh, this other point about um, having a lack of confidence and self-esteem in moving roles or, or promoted, I think this is a really big one because certainly um, I felt uh, a certain degree of imposter syndrome um, when I moved into new ranks. And, and it, is, it can be incredibly disorientating, particularly when you're having to go to maybe a different location and meeting, having a new team and having new managers and new geography and everything's new, isn't it? So let's talk about that for a little bit. Yeah. Um, is that, yeah. That's obviously quite a common theme brought to you, is it? Yeah, so it has two strands a little bit. One is um, struggling with that, uh, the, the imposter syndrome or the confidence to either move up the ranks or into different roles or people wanting to leave or retirement and that absolutely flooring them, the, the confidence to sort of actually move out the job as well. 
um, absolutely floors them. Um, so that, that, I know this, they've got similarities, but they've got uh, their different strands as well, aren't they? Um, so imposter syndrome is really common. And just to, to go over it a little bit for, for people that don't know, um, this is usually um, imposter syndrome hits everybody. It can hit the highest flyers, every rank, every role, every uh, sex and gender as well. So it can hit everybody. But it's about feeling that you're sort of almost a bit of a fraud. So you, 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 I'll sort of go for it. But if they found out really what my experience was or really what it was like, um, then I'd be kicked out straight away. They'd just sort of almost laugh, like, what the hell are you doing here type thing? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's a weird sort of um, lack of confidence mm -hmm. um, because and it's very much as well about comparing so that they've got more experience or more qualifications or a higher rank or this, that, and the other, or more contacts or a better reputation or whatever it is. Um, so it's very, a very comparable lack of mm. confidence as well. So slightly feeling you never quite match up to the others who are mm. around you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Do you think there's a, a gender imbalance in that? Because I'm going to be really unscientific here and say that I think... Um, I think there's probably I think that's probably in my experience, okay, this is not just me. In my experience, I think women underestimate their capabilities at work and men tend to overestimate <laughs> their capabilities yeah. at work. Is yeah. that something that you see? Um, it depends what rank. I do think feel that's quite attributable to rank. So yes, I would say generally I have seen women more around this sort of stuff. It's still a very sort of male orientated job. I know that's that is changing, but it still still is. Um, so definitely have this with women more than men. Mm. Um, in all in terms of going up rank. I have that with women more than men. Yeah, 100%. Actually, in terms of leaving and feeling like they have nothing to offer, that's very often um, men. Men and women, I would say. That's, that's really interesting because maybe yeah. that's sort of almost, there's just, there's maybe, I'm just shooting from hip here, so I'm probably talking complete bollocks, but um, there could be something here, there about, the shame that maybe some men feel it sort of strikes at their masculinity to think I've failed here um whereas a woman I think based on some of the conversations I have with female friends and things like that and my wife I think they tend to think no 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 this just isn't right for me and I just don't want to be here anymore whereas men I think see leaving as something almost like striking at their masculinity is that am I talking complete bollocks there or <laughs> Um, yes, I think it hits, um, does hit on an ego level. And that sounds like I'm being horrible and I'm not. Ego is actually quite important to us. And it's, and, and the ego speaks up a lot and it can hold us back. And I, hence imposter syndrome. And, you know, that's horrible when it starts to hold us back. But, um, but the ego holds an important role. And yes, it definitely, I would say it affects men leaving if they're in um, a constable or sergeant rank mostly higher ranks it's um they're less likely to leave mid-service so it tends to be more retirement and they feel that because they've had that man managerial leadership role mm. that they've probably got more to offer in the outside world a little bit so right. they don't tend to be hit as much with that not saying they don't obviously I'm talking about 
in as well the clients that I'm all the groups I'm in and that kind of stuff so mm. you know I appreciate it could vary um, you know 100% around the country but I think yeah I think in that constable sergeant rank probably haven't quite got the same managerial meetings and yeah. guarding and decisions and leads and you know leading these massive investigations and stuff like that so they haven't quite quite got that um and feel sort of and, and often uh, less so a little bit coming through now but sort of your entry period my entry period in 98 often haven't got like degrees or other mm. sort of notable qualifications so really feel and often have joined at 18 19 20 that sort of stuff so really have only felt that they've got policing and yeah. what on earth do they do when they yeah. when they leave so i'm yeah. going to give uh andy andy labram uh, yeah. Andy yeah. Andy a, a shout yeah. out so he's uh he runs is it blue light levers is it yeah blue light and, levers. Uh, yeah another one is um joe crocker have you heard of yeah. joe um, yeah he he does uh, a lot of stuff around this um he, if anybody's on linkedin we'll find him we'll find andy and joe uh joe uh, they're both ex-police officers uh joe now works very much around um, helping people who want to leave the police but um, just don't know where to start or don't know don't really understand what the skills are and yeah. all of that kind of stuff so I'd really recommend both of them to people really yeah 100% and, it, and actually talking about the meetings I was doing that is with Andy Labram and Blue Light Leavers and helping um, you know some of their members on on exactly this imposter syndrome confidence managing those negative intrusive thoughts um, because yeah. as well, Ian, if you take away retirement, because that has its own issues, as we've just talked about, but if you're choosing to leave midway, it's probably because there's some problems. It's mm. probably because you've been run down or burnt out or can't take it anymore or affecting your family or so on. So mm. that in turn is knocking people's self-esteem yeah. um, and bringing lots of sort of uh, negativity and low confidence. Mm. So, yeah, it kind of goes a little bit hand in hand if they're leaving um, mm. sort of mid-service. Yeah, I mean, I suppose what, it, what I'd say as well, just to reassure people, you know, from my own experience, is that I think imposter syndrome is completely normal. Uh, and I actually think in some ways it's actually quite healthy that you don't think you're the bee's knees, you know, that you there is an element of humility there that that you think, OK, I've got I've got a lot to learn here. I need to find my feet. I remember when I became a chief inspector for the first time, I I, I find that quite a big, a big step, even though I've been doing lots of really responsible jobs as, a, as an inspector. Um, moving up to chief inspector, I find was a was was quite a big jump. And mm -hmm. um and it was also in a department that I'd never worked in before, uh, uh, force intelligence. So I just didn't really understand what my job was, you know, and it took me quite a long time. And some of the people around me, uh, peers were really, really kind and really helpful. Uh, others, um, quite the opposite. And, and you know, you soon find out who to trust. And, you know, the, you, you understand that there's a lot of back, there's a lot of backstabbing goes on within, within senior leadership teams or senior management teams. You know, the, the, they and that was a that was quite an eye opener to me um, to see how much nastiness that there were and, and unhelpfulness there was actually amongst senior officers towards each other. Not not all of them. Um, most of them were, were very supportive of each other. But, you know, particularly around chief inspector, right, because they're all vying for the next rank, aren't they? So mm -hmm. there's a lot of backstabbing going on, a lot of dirty tricks being played and, you know, all that kind of I'm, I'm bloody glad. 
um, to be ahead of all that, quite honestly. But um, yeah, so just um, just looking at looking at that 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 list again. Um, just one second, I'll just um, think. No, no, that's okay. I I've got down PTSD, and I think it'd be right. worth just sort of touching it as a standalone because I know I've kind of brought it in in some different uh, different ways that it can show okay. up a little bit. So but yeah, so PTSD, I mean, it's a, one of those things. So do you want us, for, let's not assume any knowledge of anybody. So what is PTSD? Yeah, and I think actually that's probably the most important bit to get across because a lot of us still don't really sort of know what that would be. And there's some really quite um, clear signs and symptoms of PTSD. So I thought I'd, I've, I've just listed them and I thought I'd go through them so that people, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, um, because then people can sort of, uh, note what that is and I and I think as well it's important to note that um, uh, you know say you went for a formal diagnosis of this this wouldn't be diagnosed and I'm really sorry I'm going to say at the top of my head three until three months after an incident it, it could possibly be a month so sorry if I've got that wrong but what I'm trying to say is it's not the immediate aftermath because lots of us will have these type these feelings or emotions straight after an incident and right. the PTSD side of it is when it's um, months, sometimes years afterwards, this will come out as well, Ian. So it's not something that immediately happens mm -hmm. um, that would be classed as PTSD. Um, so some of the uh, signs or symptoms of PTSD um, is being, there's three, three hypers, hypervigilant, hyperarousal, and hypersensitivity. So hypervigilance is around um, being totally on edge that you feel everything is almost a little bit of a threat every bang every like that jumping and being very distrusting of others mm. um feeling everything what do they mean by that what does that text mean what does that mean what did what, what did their face look like da, 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 da. if there's a bang if there's a knock it's hypervigilance right. um constantly being on edge and alert um hyper arousal um is um being able to get uh, extremely angry, extremely upset, extremely overwhelmed or whatever at, at what other people are saying. Why are you flying off the handle about that? What are, you know, what, why, you know, and just literally um, exploding with anger or rage at the littlest thing. That's hyper arousal. Right. Hypersensitivity is um, literally your, your senses. So um, you'll know, Ian, if, if you go to somebody um, at a job sometimes and they'd be like, don't touch me, don't touch me, don't touch me, like this sort of thing. And, yeah, yeah. and you're only trying to just sort of maybe guide them off, yeah. the, off the middle of the road or something. Can they be almost cowering? So yeah. very, very sensitive to touch, to sounds like that, almost covering their ears, like stop it, stop shouting, stop shouting, stop shouting. Um, very sensitive to smell. It can be anything, smells, tastes sight but mainly would be touch or sound right. um, so yes yeah, so, and, and also it can be hypersensitive to stuff like people get gut issues IBS that sort of stuff so very mm. sensitive to foods or alcohols that perhaps they weren't before yeah. um, so very sensitive sort of uh, bodily reactions mm. okay so the others as well then flashbacks so that's where you'll almost be doing your normal day and suddenly for almost what we think is no reason, um, something from the past around perhaps those traumas would pop into your head. So an yeah. image of a scene or something that you've seen or words or something like that would flash back into your, um, into your mind sort of unbidden. Right, okay. Um, nightmares or night terrors. So sort of waking from 
um, nightmares. And it doesn't have to be, I will say this, around the actual incident, mm. but it could be something to do with the incident, but sort of slightly removed. So um, feeling that you're being attacked, um, but it doesn't have to be the incident or feeling that you, if, if you are going through an investigation, you could be having a nightmare that you're up in court and going to prison or, you know, that mm. doesn't have to be a nightmare about the real event. It could be how your brain's trying to process it and or panicking about it or worrying about it. So. And could you, could you include in that, that sort of going back to that idea of your mind going round and round and in sort of constant loop uh, and a very unhelpful, painful loop at that. Could you include that sort of catastrophizing thing because that's that's what something I was probably guilty of I think a lot of people I've spoken to as well they always imagine the worst possible thing is going to happen you know is that would that would that be would that be sort of a PTSD type thing yes and I would say all of this um because all of us could have a nightmare sort of thing and you wouldn't Mm. say that's necessarily PTSD. So what I would then say to people, so yes, absolutely, because the catastrophizing slightly would come into hypervigilant, like constantly thinking that could go wrong, this could go wrong, they could go that, they could do do that. So it slightly comes into that hypervigilance. So what I would say is, um, because I think a lot of us can catastrophize, and I see a lot of people who catastrophize and wouldn't necessarily have PTSD, but it's really how much it's impacting your life. Mm. Um, so, you know, people can have catastrophizing thoughts and that's not nice and it starts to become a bit intrusive, but they probably still go. So say mm. it was about travel or your children going out or going to that restaurant or whatever it is. But if you still went and still mm. did it and didn't have it as, as negative impact on your life, then it probably wouldn't necessarily be be PTSD. Mm. I appreciate, Ian, one I'd like to say to everybody, I'm not medical, so I don't diagnose Mm. anybody. That would have to be a diagnosis um, with your GP or other professionals, so I'm not medical. Um, But I have done um, a counselling diploma in PTSD so that I can be aware of these signs and symptoms and and have to look at talking. And and in terms of people who, some people listening to us thinking, shit, that sounds like me, bloody hell. is 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 this something that is it is treatable i'm assuming it is some it's not something you sort of think oh god this is me forever now um i'm going to be careful with the word treat (laughs) because because i'm not medical i'm not allowed to say treat Um, i i deal with clients with ptsd Mm -hmm. and i i I find what I work with helps a lot. I'm right. going to say that, okay. but that's you know, I have to be really careful because I'm not medical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say um, so it, it depends where you go to, what for. Um, but yeah. absolutely, I believe you can um, live a really good life after PTSD. I would say I didn't have a medical diagnosis. I'll say that, but I will say I had these signs and symptoms in my life mm. um, very much. I would say mm. I had complex PTSD around that sort of drip, drip trauma effect in the police. Mm. Mm. Um, I would have some hideous flare ups in, mm. in my life um, that would last about three days and I wouldn't be able to work um, or do anything with them. And then they, I would put things in place and they would pass and then I'd, I'd be fine actually, but then they yeah. would hit again. And, and it would be horrible. So since I've had my, I can, I can talk anecdotally about me, since I've had the therapy that I had, mm. I have never had um, a flare up again. Right. So I can I can say that I can say that's been really successful for me. 
Um, so everybody is different and it would yeah. depend what treatment or therapy you had. Yeah. Um, but I yeah. believe you can be free of those yeah. signs. I've of actually, I've actually life. seen, um, yeah. I've actually seen, I've, I've experienced it myself to, to some extent, but I've definitely seen it in colleagues and friends where they've been exhibiting what I think are probably signs of PTSD, but not because of any particular trauma that they've dealt with, but because of bullying at right. work, yeah. you know, yeah. and uh, I've seen some, I've seen people being destro almost destroyed yeah. as a, as a, yeah. as a person because of a particularly horrible and prolonged incident of bullying at work. And, um, and I, I, I do think that I mean I've experienced a little bit of that. I think we probably all have along the way. But um, yeah, really, really, does do people come to you around sort of bullying issues? Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Let less common than all the other stuff we talked about. Being really mm. honest, but mm. yes, um, yeah, very definitely. And it is. You're quite right. It's very um, uh, can absolutely be a trauma in itself. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah, so, I, I think. Um, I mean, I think. I think about some of the toxic managers that you know you can have along the way um, that can just make your life a complete bloody misery. You know, and yeah. um, you know, and I, I sort of think. Uh, I think to myself about. You know, I think until you've had a manager like that, you. It's weird. It's a weird thing. Is I always think that you can turn. Well, I'll speak for myself here. You can turn. Uh, your own suffering uh, into something ultimately positive because it it becomes uh, it's a massive learning experience you know you just think right okay I've experienced what that feels like and it's not good and uh, you, you kind of def there's definitely uh, I don't I don't want to say that we should embrace suffering um, but I think I think there is something there isn't there about you learn a lot about yourself don't you when you go through those things and I, I'll, I'll go as far as saying I'm not sure we fully learn if we don't suffer which I know sounds awful and we should we should you know as a human race that's how we should evolve to learn all the best stuff without having to go through all the shit first but we yeah. don't and we don't do that and it doesn't force us to kind of look at that stuff I guess until you're in this sort of awful place and and you know you mentioned about me having cancer twice and and some difficulties and problems in the police and I I think it, it I don't think I'd be doing what I did now do now mm. and hopefully helping people um as much as I help them now if I hadn't been through all that and so yeah, yeah, you know, definitely. yeah definitely you can I think it. as a as a parent it's a funny one isn't it because as a parent um you know my, my I've got two older kids and they're in my old my oldest is 30 and my you know I've got a 24 year old and I've got the two little ones um, and as a parent, you really want to protect your, you know, you want, want to protect your children. You don't want to see your children suffering or having difficulties in their life. But but equally, um, you can't protect them from everything. And yeah. uh, and actually, as you just said, that is an essential part of of self-knowledge, isn't it? And um, learning how to cope in difficult and adverse circumstances is is not so 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 another thing I would say to another thing I'd say from my own experience to people listening to this is um you know if you're going through a divorce or you're going through something really painful or you, if you're you know generally speaking 
generally speaking, everything will pass, wasn't, wasn't it? Everything. People used to say that to me all the time. You say, oh, you know, time's a great healer. You know, and, and then when you're in the middle of all that shit, you go, you can fuck right off with your time's a great healer. You know, I want to press the fast forward button and be out of this shit right now. You know, but you can't, can you? You can't press the, the fast forward button in life. You've got to, you've got to go wading through that shit, haven't you? Yeah. And and I've seen, I used to see people, I'm sure you've seen it as well, people who were complete assholes, but who would then have a really difficult period in their life and it would transform them. It would transform them. They would be much more humble. They were nicer to be around. And you think that's because of what you've been through and it has cut you off at the knees. And um, yeah, so I mean, anyway, I'm rambling now. <laughs> it's okay, but it does. And it does change us all. And you, you, I don't think you can go through some of this big stuff and it not change you. And, and maybe change some people for the worse in terms of, you know, bitterness or revenge and really holding on to, to anger and bitterness and all that kind of stuff. And, mm. and, and, and that, that stuff eats you up, you know, it eats you up. And um, we, we, we have a saying in mental health and stuff. And if you, you know, if you are somebody holding on to revenge and hell bent on revenge, then dig yourself two graves. You know, if you want revenge for them, fine, but then you yeah. dig your own grave as well. It yeah. just beats you up. So, um, you know, and definitely that's something that people come to come for to help let go of that kind of stuff. But you, but if you choose to, you can't, you can't not learn something ace actually from all the the shit mm. stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 100%. Listen, I think that's probably not a bad place to to wrap it up. You said um, earlier on that there was some organisations that you could um, signpost people to. Um, yeah. or, or was that me imagining it? Yeah, no, you didn't at all. Um, <laughs> do you mind if I just quickly said the last few bits of the PTSD symptoms? Yes, just yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, do yeah, better, but, no, that's fine. But just so in case, because I just think it's so that people can recognise it if they need to. So we did, uh, we did talk about nightmares and night terrors. So under that is avoidance and emotional numbing. So that's wanting to avoid um, often social situations. Um, uh, family stuff or avoiding work but avoiding things just not wanting to be able to you know feeling either too overwhelmed to dealing with things emotional numbing is like cutting off so if your family is saying you're so cold you don't talk you just shut us out those kind of mm. phrases that that's often a, um, a there's quite a quite a big overlap there with depression isn't there really you know because certainly um you know, a lot of my own experience in the past and I experienced a lot of people I've, I've spoken to said, you know, there's that kind of, you just lose all interest in yeah. the thing, thing, in the things that previously would have, you would have been excited to do. You just have, yeah. you just, just basically just don't care, you know. Yeah, it is. It's shutting um, off and that. And then you can get physical symptoms um, with no particular obvious cause. So I don't mean you should, if you've got physical symptoms, you should go and get those checked out separately, of course. But some obvious, some uh, PTSD ones can be sweating, trembling, crying, or in physical pain that, that hasn't really got a particularly obvious cause so we can have physical symptoms as well and then uh, the last one is very heightened levels of guilt or shame um, oh. I know we touched on that didn't we sort of throughout a little bit but um, huge levels of guilt and shame often around PTSD oh gosh so yeah well if you're experiencing any of those or god forbid all of them um, 
and get yourself some help. Yeah, definitely sort of reach out. And so let's, yeah, you're right, Ian, let's go through some of those groups if that's okay. Yeah, of course. Um, so we mentioned blue light levers, that's Andy Labram, and that's around um, supporting uh, police officers that are looking to leave or retire and um, get new jobs. Brilliant, brilliant, supportive group. Um, so I'm also part of a group called Trojan Wellbeing. So that's run by Steve Thornton, it's called Lobby. Um, and he's ex-Met Firearms. And he, it's a national group, so there's people from all over the country. Um, there's a Facebook group, there's a website, he can put you on a WhatsApp group if you want to join. We've just made it a bit more regional because there's so many of us. So there's sort of regions like West Mids and um, uh, South, North group and so on. Um, so do, but, and so what that offers is peer support, which is great. Officers that have been through all sorts of stuff like we were talking about, Ian. Um, mm. You know, people that have been through the ill health retirement, people who've been through complaints, um, divorce, cancer, bereavement, all those things. So it's just nice to have an officer, but they've also been through something yeah. similar to you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a lovely group. And then um, there's Police Care UK. Um, they offer counselling and support and financial um, support and advice as well. So I think what we talked about with debt and finances, um, no. that's a really, really good resource to go to. There's Call for Backup, PTSD 999 and Oscar Kilo. So oh my goodness, all, there's, there's a um, lot of lot of groups out there, aren't there? Yeah, I know exactly, and, you, and a lot a lot of officers don't know about them, um, but there is a lot of help and support out there, guys. So if you and also um, Ian, certainly Trojan Wellbeing and Blue Light Leavers are just lovely groups as well. You know, yeah. nice people, positive groups, yeah, yeah. support each yeah. other. Yeah. yeah, great. Well, yeah. I know that I know that Joe Crocker um, is doing a uh, sort of a, I think he's creating a. Uh, supportive forum of uh, people who are looking to leave policing uh, and also people like myself who've been in policing who are now working in the private sector or any other sort of area of life to sort of like help help sort of and support people who are on that sort of journey really so I've, I've put myself forward to help Joe with that as, as well as so there's another organization here that I've 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 contacted to, to get someone uh, on the podcast, actually, it's the IODPA, the Injury on Duty Pensioners Association. Gosh, um, so that's that's a charity that um, they describe themselves the only dedicated organisation that supports police officers that have been injured on duty through no fault of their own. Uh, injuries can be mental, physical, or on occasions can be both. Uh, so uh, I'm going to get someone from them on the podcast because I think that'll be really interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Apparently, they've got some they've got some pretty pretty hair-raising stories apparently around some of the people who they've kind of supported through through all of that so yeah. Bad. brilliant well listen you get another gold star hannah <laughs> how many can i rack up here <laughs> oh yeah well, it's gonna be like a starbucks yeah. loyalty card isn't it even i got two yeah. Uh, how many have I got to get for a free Starbucks then? <laughs> oh, no. I'm, I'm just so I have to, I have to give that some thoughts and uh, <laughs> yeah, get your own podcast. Then. But uh, listen, um, this has been brilliant, really, really helpful. But we've there's a lot in there, isn't there? We've covered a lot of ground, and um, you talking a lot of sense, and me talking probably quite a lot of bollocks. So um, not at all, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> listen, uh, well, uh, we must catch up. Uh, we must catch up soon. Um, no, I'll, 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 yeah. I'll end the podcast now but I'll keep you on and we'll have a little chat all right all, all right. right take care bye, bye, bye. <laughs>
he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha